As we come to Exodus chapter 24 over the last number of weeks, uh, really since Exodus 20 where we saw the 10, 10 commandments, we've been going through this section where, <clears throat> four chapters really, uh, where the, the law has been given. Exodus chapter 20 recorded for us the 10 commandments. Exodus 21 through 23 the Lord shares with Moses and with his people specific regulations in regards to, into light, uh, in regards to life and, and justice in this newly forming nation as they're before Mount Sinai and before the presence of the Lord. From here on in, uh, through the book of Exodus, for the most part, we're going to see details in regards to God uh, inaugurating a place for worship and creating a mode for worship for his people, okay? So, so two things, a place and a mode. This is where it's going to happen and this is what it's going to uh, look like. We recall that in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was just still a Bedouin shepherd hiding out in the desert for that 40-year period in, in Sinai, he, he met God in an encounter at the burning bush on Mount Sinai and God spoke to him from the midst of the bush and he assigned him the task that once the children of Israel were led out of slavery in the land of Egypt, he was to bring them to Mount Sinai and they were to worship God. That, that was the whole task, the whole assignment. And so the experience at Sinai as God's people gathered at the foot of this mountain has begun with uh, the giving of the law. The law came down. Uh, man realized their transgression and their sin. And thus as the Lord begins to teach them and establish for them a mode, a mode for their worship, a place for their worship, they were aware of their need for forgiveness. And so the first thing that we're going to see happen here is that Moses is going to build an altar. Let's check it out in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but others, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. We know Moses, we know Aaron, of course, with his, was his older brother. He's going to become the, the high priest of Israel, the first high priest. His two oldest sons, he had four sons. His two oldest were Nadab and uh, Abihu. And it's interesting, you know, to me, just that they're included in this part of the story because they're two men that are going to meet an untimely end. They're going to author. They're going to bring before the Lord worship that was unauthorized. They're going to bring fire into His presence, and God is uh, going to strike these two men down for dishonoring Him. And so it's just it's just interesting, you know. In a sense, they almost remind me of Judas. They get the chance to come and worship God and be a part of the inner circle, even though eventually they're going to be excluded. But as they're called up the mountain. Uh, with the Lord, this whole crew, God says, they will worship from afar, from a distance. You know, I, I just think, thankfully, we, we live on the other side of the dividing line of history. The cross is the dividing line of history, right? The sacrifice that Jesus made for the sin of mankind. 
And we live in the age of grace where we draw near to God. We don't worship from afar, but we get to draw near to God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, before the cross, uh, under the law, men worship from afar. Even now, when people try to approach God on the basis of the law, the best they can only ever do is be far from God. Worship from a distance. But through Jesus, the scripture tells us, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You know, sometimes we come into the house of God even and it feels like you're far away from the Lord. You ever... You just come to worship and you say, God, I feel far away. Other times we come to church and we're feeling, we're fearing, feeling near to the Lord. But you know, the, the thing is, what, whether we're far or near, the Lord's worthy of our worship, isn't he? One of the things I find is when I feel far and I begin to worship, the drawing near begins to happen. You know, the Lord says, draw me, near to me and I will draw near to you. In, in, exit, uh, in verse 3 it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. So as we've seen, Moses comes before the people with all, the, all of the laws and the Ten Commandments that we've seen in the last number of chapters. And, and here I would say is really where the children of Israel reveal the heart of all mankind. Uh, the, the heart of mankind that is, is full of self-deception and self-confidence and self-sufficiency, they hear the law of God and they say this, we will do it. We'll, we'll do it all. And you know, if there is one thing that a person should recognize when they hear the God, God's law, it's, it's not their ability to do it, it's their inability to do it. Uh, their inability to meet the holy demands of a, of, a, of a holy God. You know, there are many people who believe that they're, they're living by the law and they, they would define themselves as good people. You know, this, this week I got into a great conversation with someone um, in the community and they, they, they started asking me about faith in the Lord and we talked about the difference between being religious and having relationship with God. And, and they talked about their ability to follow the Ten Commandments. And I said, that's amazing, because I can't do that. And we, we just had an open conversation about that and, and talked about the law reveals not our ability, but our inability to follow God. See, our boast should never be in our goodness, but always in God's grace. The Apostle John said this in 1 John 1, 8. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So I was thinking about this, that's, that's a powerful statement to say, the truth is not in you if you say you have no sin. But John goes on to say, but if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, the children of Israel, though they profess, they're, they're with sincerity, their desire to fulfill the law. The reality is, was, is they, they could not keep God's law and neither can we. The Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. Uh, 
And so I think, you know, the better answer would have been, well, you know, Lord, I want to do your will. Please help me because without you, I can do nothing. Not that self-sufficient claim of their hearts. But without you, I can do nothing. God, help me. In verse 4, it says, Moses wrote down all the words of the people. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now this is before the Levites, the tribe of Levi had become priests. And so there were young men who were called to offer sacrifices to the Lord. They brought burnt offerings to God. The consuming of an offering in fire speaks of consecration. So they were saying, we are consecrating ourselves to you, God. They brought uh, peace offerings, which are uh, fellowship offerings, which are to prepare people to come into the presence of God. They, they were making peace with God. And it says here that they, they offered oxen, in verse 6, and Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Lots of blood here. They're entering into a blood covenant with God. Verse 7. Then he took the blood of the, the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So we don't, you know, I, I don't imagine that at this point they had the complete book of the covenant. Certainly they had, you know, Exodus 20 through 24 and those laws that we've seen the last number of weeks. And I would say this, these people had good intentions. You know, there's no need to question their sincerity. They were sincere in their uh, statement and in their belief that they could follow and obey uh, the, the law of God. The reality is, though they felt that they could, they were entering into a sort of self-deception. They promised to obey, but they couldn't. You know, Peter said something similar to Jesus. On the night that Jesus b- was betrayed, he said, Lord, though all forsake you, I will not. You can count on me, God. You can count on me. And that night, three times, as we know, Peter betrayed the master. You know, just a few chapters after this declaration and this entering into this blood covenant with the Lord, we know that the the children of Israel are going to fashion and bow down to a, a golden calf, an idol. See, the natural man believes that he can please God, but the natural man in his flesh cannot please God. You and I cannot please God in the flesh because we cannot meet the standards of God. You know, the, uh, the standards of the law. The writer of Hebrews said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And when you turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and you read about the men and women who, who received from the Lord commendation, Um, for their relationship with God, it was because they approached God on the basis of faith and not on the basis of their obedience or, or their ability to do the law of God. The Bible tells us, as we know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Moses knew that without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin. So he built the altar. He set up these 12 pillars which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The altar really, the ultimate altar, the ultimate altar. 
is the one in which our sins were forever cleansed through the blood that was shed on it, the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Lamb of God was slain for you and I. Verse 8, check it out. Moses took blood and he threw it on the people. Wow, what a mess, eh? It's a nasty picture, really. And Moses took blood and he threw it on the, on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this, this is a serious and solemn moment before the Lord as, as the sacrifices are made and blood is put on the altar before the Lord, but then blood is put on the people of God as they enter into this blood covenant. You know, you can cleanse the outside, but we know it's the inside that's got to change, right? The inside. We realize that we need to be changed from the inside out. We need the Lord to create in us a, a clean heart, to renew in us a steadfast spirit. But as these people enter into this relationship, this covenant relationship with the Lord, they're now ready to receive, as the sin has been atoned for, they're now ready to receive instructions regarding the worship. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. That's awesome. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Wow, that's incredible favor. Can you imagine to go up the mountain of the Lord and to see the Lord? And like I mentioned earlier, you know, you might classify these guys with Judas, but Nadab and Abihu got to participate in this as well. So Moses and the crew go up the mountain and they see God, which is, I mean, how do you explain that? They saw God. Um, I, I guess we, ha we have to interpret that in light of what we read elsewhere in scripture. See, Paul said that the Lord dwells in unapproachable light and that no one has ever seen God. Jesus, or John chapter 1 verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. Isaiah told us in Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died that he saw the Lord. Philip saw into the, the throne room of heaven in a, in a vision. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel, actually, that Isaiah, who Isaiah actually saw was Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You know, it's been said that, you know, if man came, and we see this in Scripture, that he came, if he came into the presence of the Father, he would just simply die and it because of the holiness of God but it's it's really you know in that sense it, it it's not an issue of punishment it's an in, it's an issue of the grandeur and the glory of God that he is so awesome that to come into his very presence your heart would just stop I mean I don't know how else to describe it the reality is this all that we know about the Father is through the Son. Jesus Christ said that himself. And so I would say, you know, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders saw Jesus. 
That's the only way you can reconcile what we read here with the rest of scripture. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for its clearness. Beautiful picture of the Lord as these men come into his presence. And I think that it's important that you see it in contrast to the terrifying visions that we've seen of the Lord already. At Mount Sinai thus far, what has it been? Thunder, flashes of lightning, the blast of the trumpet, you know, uh, thick, dark cloud, the mountaintop consumed with fire, uh, uh, smoke rising from the top of it as, as like from a, a kiln going straight up into heaven and the voice of the Lord speaking. I mean, every description of the Lord thus far, I would say, almost stands in stark contrast to what we see here. The serene vision of of God with under his feet pavement like sapphire and it's clear and it's beautiful. Like the very heaven for its clearness. You know, Lisa has always hassled me a little bit uh, and told me that one day she'd like an upgrade on the diamond that's in her engagement band. <laughs> and I always tell to her, well, I, I think you actually did pretty good considering I was in Bible school <laughs> when, when I bought that ring. And we joke about that. And, and she also tells me that one day she'd like to add a stone to the wedding band and she'd like to have a sapphire. She's told me that for years. I'd like a, a sapphire in the wedding band. And so, you know, over the years, um, we've had fun with that and if we're wandering around and we end up in a jewelry store, we, all, we always go look at the sapphires and we talk about adding a sapphire to her, the dream of adding a sapphire to her wedding ring. And you know, uh, I, I know why she, lo- I, I began to discover why my wife loves a sapphire because a sapphire is beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful stone. You know, sometimes it's, it, they come in different hues of blue. You know, sometimes it's like the sky, the blue sky. <laughs> you know, other times they're, 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 they're really dark, almost black. It kind of reminds me of the colors that I see in the, those little blue stellar jays that we have here on the Sunshine Coast and the hues of blue and their feathers. Sometimes you, you see one of them and it's, and it's like looking at Lake Louise or looking at the icy blue color of a glacier. There's, there's depth and there's distance and there is beauty in the color of a saf- sapphire and at the same time, this, this blue hue is like serene and calm in, in, its, in its color. You know, in the scripture, blue is actually the color of eternity. We see it in the expanse of the sky We see it when the ocean's blue and we look off into the horizon and it fades in the distance and there's no land to to see. It's just blue ocean extending. It's the color of eternity. And Moses tells us that under the feet of Jesus was this blue sapphire and in its clarity it was like looking into heaven itself. What an awesome scene, right? In contrast to the craziness that's been happening on this mountain. 
And I remind you, you know, it's, it's, it's the context is worship. God is about to describe to them the mode for worshiping me. This is the place you will worship me. And it's in this vision where they see God that it's like they catch a glimpse of his transcendence and his glory and the superiority of God before they even get instructions on worship. And I think that this is, you know, important. You know, the thunderstorms that darkened the sky, the terror that filled the hearts of the people as they stood at the foot of the mountain. I mean, the fear the elders and the leaders and Moses and the boys had as they went up uh, the mountain be, kind of became, you know, the clouds parted. It, it, it became unclouded in their mind and it became clear as they saw everything under the feet of Jesus Christ. And you know, uh, you ever feel like life's over your head? <laughs> that you're involved in things that are over your head? Well, the truth is, whatever is over your head is always underneath Jesus' feet. And when it's underneath, when you see it in the place of being underneath the feet of Jesus, you begin to see the beauty in what God is doing in the midst of those things. And when we see the, the rule of God, which is over us, it, it, it becomes, the things that feel over our heads become beautiful. We begin to trust God. And I would say, you know, too, too often my vision is clouded and life feels more like I'm walking around in the midst of a thick cloud. But when I place the things that are over my head under the feet of Jesus and I worship Jesus, man, then life gets clear and clarity comes and I begin to see the beauty of God. It says something beautiful in verse 11. It says, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. He did not lay his hand on them. What does that mean? It means this. He didn't kill them. He did not kill them for coming into his presence. He invited them into his presence so that he could teach them about worship. Not only that, they ate and they drank with the Lord. Verse 12 says, Then the Lord says to Mo- said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instructions. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. Joshua is going to be coming more and more into the story as God prepares him to succeed. He's a young guy. He's got lots to learn. God's preparing him to lead Israel. Pretty cool. He gets to go up there with Moses for the giving that's for the tab as the Lord writes out the tablets and gives the instruction. Verse 14. And he said to the elders, wait here for us to return to you and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, go to them. That didn't go so well. You know, Aaron and her in charge. We actually don't know what happened to her. The Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us. I can only imagine because it's because he didn't participate with Aaron and the false worship that happened in the making of the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain. We're going to get to that part of the story in a, in a few weeks. But either way, you know, I just say this. These two dudes left in charge didn't go good. Verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. 
And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. We have this beautiful picture of Jesus up top there. But imagine looking at the mountain as we've talked about over these last number of weeks uh, from the foot of the mountain, from a distance, what it looked like from below, a devouring, consuming fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of God. Uh, but up top, man, it was a close personal vision for Moses. And think about this. Moses was up on that mountaintop now for 40 days the Bible tells us elsewhere, without food and without water. That when he came down after he had been given the tablets uh, with the Ten Commandments and he saw the people worshiping the golden calf, he took the, the, the Ten Commandments, those tablets, and he threw them down. They were, they were smashed, smashed to pieces. And then he went up the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights and he still didn't eat or drink. So in the presence of God for 80 days and 80 nights, here's, here's Moses without food, without water. He is sustained physically and preserved by the presence of God, by being in the presence of God. Uh, not only that, when he came down the mountain the second time, the Bible tells us that his face glowed so much that people were afraid of him. That he had to uh, cover up so that they wouldn't see the glory of God and the fading glory of God that was upon him. Now we come to chapter 25. We're going to go through two chapters this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you, you shall receive the contribution for me. So again, the Lord is about to share the design for worship, the tabernacle, and all through the midst of this, God is going to give his people a part to play in the program. He, he invites them to participate with them. He says, go down there and take for me a contribution from the people. He says, and I want you to take it this way. From every man whose heart moves him uh, to give, you, you shall receive a contribution from me. This was going to be a free will offering, right? We take those once in a while. Free will offering in church. This was a free will offering and it's important to realize that, that really the New Testament teaches us the same thing in regards to our giving to God. You know, we talk about 10%. We talk about it being robbery against God when we don't give. You know, we could talk about the promise that, that he has promised to bless us when we give. But the reality is this. God never was ever, ever after people's money, Right? He was always after our hearts. And the New Testament, he says, take up a, an offering from those who want to give freely. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, Paul said the same thing. He said, e each man should decide in his heart what he's to give. And not reluctantly or under a compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, when he has our hearts, we're open-handed with our money and with our stuff and with, with things. And, and so the Lord says, let a man give as his heart moves him. Verse three. 
And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, purple and scarlet yarns, fine twin linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And so they're given all sorts of stuff for the establishment of worship. And we might go, wait a minute, where did all this stuff come from? They're slaves, man. They've been, they've been just months removed from slavery in Egypt. But we have to remember that as they left Egypt, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. The Lord commanded them, ask for their stuff. Ask for their gold. Ask for their silver. And the Egyptians just handed it over. And, and Israel plundered Egypt as they departed. You know, there wasn't a day of slavery where God did not fail to repay his people for the service that they had given in, in Egypt. Not only that, you know, there was this battle with the Malak, the Amalekites, where Moses, remember when his arms were held up by Aaron and Hur, and they defeated, the, the scripture tells us as well that they defeated the Amalekites and plundered them. And so, man, even though they're just months removed from slavery, there's, there's great wealth amongst uh, the people of God. And they give gold and silver and all these different things. Now as we move through here, gold is a picture of purity. It's a picture of holiness. It's a picture of the deity of God. Silver is always the picture of the price for redemption. You, you pay in silver. Brass speaks of the judgment of God. In weeks to come, we'll talk about some of the, the colors and different things that they repre represent. And um, I would say this. What, what we need to see here as we go through this is that at Mount Sinai, God is inviting the participation of his people. He says, give to my purposes willingly. And the sovereign Lord of creation actually like makes himself vulnerable to his creation. He, he, he condescends to ask, the sovereign Lord of the universe makes appeal to us and he says, as your heart moves you, give. And he says that to the children of Israel. Each man decide in his heart what to give. Give cheerfully to the Lord. And you know, I, I, just, I just love that about the sovereignty of God. That because he, he loves his people and desires that we would love him back, he honors our capacity to choose. He condescends. He makes himself vulnerable and he asks us to choose him, to give to him, to respond to his love for us. Verse eight. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's the heart of God right there. To dwell in the midst of his people, to be present with his people, to have a place where he might meet with his people. You know, even when Isaiah prophesied about the coming of Jesus, he said his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. Because it is the heart of God to be with his people, to be present with us. That's why it is such a wonderful thing when the people of God gather, and as Jesus said, when two or three come together in my name, there I am in their midst. 
I'm there. I want to be present with my people, you know. And so we, we could ask, well, wh- what does God want from me? What he wants is you. What he wants is to be present with you. What he wants is your heart. And so he gave the most precious thing that he could give so that he could be with you. His son, Jesus. John chapter 3 verse 16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So they're gonna build this sanctuary, this meeting place, the tabernacle. And as we read this, we're gonna see that it was not meant to be a permanent house. It was a portable meeting place that could be packed up and be moved. And as God begins to lay out for Moses the instructions for the tabernacle and the sanctuary, he starts with the centerpiece of worship. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Calvin, you could flash that up there. I'm going to just show you some pictures of these things as we're going through. The Ark of the Covenant, the centerpiece of the place of, of worship. Now as God lays out these instructions and these instructions for worship, the perspective of this is this. Is he is going to move from his viewpoint out. From the throne of God out. From the Ark of God out. He's going to explain everything. Which is kind of cool because when he begins to describe man and the work of the priest, he's going to go in the opposite direction. He's going to talk about man coming in and he's going to describe everything that way. And so as Lord establishes worship, it's ark out. Okay, verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. So there's not even a building yet. There's not even a tent yet. There's not a sanctuary yet. There's not a tabernacle. And the Lord starts by telling Moses the furniture to build. This is at the, that's the opposite, right? We, we don't get furniture and then build a house. We build our house and then we put the furniture in. The Lord starts in the opposite direction. And it's very important here that he says, you shall do it as you see up here on the mountain. Moses essentially is in heaven. Heaven has come down. He has seen the pattern of things in heaven. We're going to see this more as we go through the book of Exodus, but it really describes for us the universe. Say, so how does the universe work and function with, with earth and the throne of God and everything? It's all seen in the tabernacle. And God says, as you've seen it in heaven, so you shall build it on earth. It's awesome. Verse 10, he says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So the centerpiece of worship was the ark. It's a wooden box. A cubit is the distance from your elbow to the tips of your fingers, approximately 18 inches, okay? So just in general terms, this is a box that's four by two by two, okay? It's an ark. It says, You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. There is so much symbolism here. It's absolutely endless. I want to touch on a few things this morning, all right? The ark was made of acacia wood. But it was overlaid both on the outside and the inside with gold. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. Okay? The wood speaks of his humanity and the gold speaks of his deity. 
overlaid with gold both on the outside and on the inside. One of probably the most difficult and yet essential doctrines of Christianity and that the Bible teaches is understanding the human and the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. Jesus was not just a man who learned to work wonders. He was not just a man who awakened within himself and developed this God Christ consciousness. He was God. He, he spoke as God. He spoke of himself on the same plane of God, as plain as God. He told Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, Philip. I and the Father and the Father are one. At the same time, Jesus was perfectly human. He grew tired. You know, he wept. He got thirsty. He slept. He ate. He drank. He suffered. He died. Those are the characteristics of being human. And like the gold and the wood on the ark, both were required and needed for him to fulfill the purposes of God. And the identity of one was not lost in the other. He was both God and he was man. And so the humanity and the deity of Jesus, we could say this, we know this, it's shrouded in mystery. How do you grasp this, this concept? But the fact is, if you remove it, there's no gospel. You cannot have the gospel without the deity and the humanity of Jesus. And so I would say this, the symbolism of the wooden box overlaid with gold inside and out is a profoundly simple way to understand the nature of Jesus. Inside and out, gold, wooden, wood. The God-man. Verse 12. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and you shall put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to, to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put, that, put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So placed into this uh, wooden box overlaid with gold was the testimony. That's the tablets, the Ten Commandments written on those stones. And they were placed inside the ark. Not only that, the Bible tells us elsewhere that there was also a jar of gold placed inside which had manna in it from the, the days in the desert. And also placed a third item in that ark of the covenant was the staff. Remember the staff that budded with almonds and leaves? It was Aaron's staff placed before the presence of the Lord. And those three things speak symbolically of the the life of Jesus Christ. Of course, the law of God was in him. He fulfilled it perfectly, inside and outside. The word of God in the flesh, perfectly fulfilling the Ten Commandments in this earthly life. You can also say the tablets speak of his his kingship, his rule, he, he, he was born a king, he died a king, he rose from the dead a king. The gold jar of manna reveals that it's the bread that came down from heaven. We know Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. The word of God fulfilled. He's a prophet. There's a picture of that in there. Aaron's staff that budded speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Though he was dead, he, he was raised from the dead. And, and as 
our great high priest, he, he passed into heaven when he was raised from the dead. He, the Hebrews tells us he offered his blood at the altar that is in heaven. And so we, we, we see the person and the work of Jesus Christ in the ark. It says this in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its, its length and a cubit and a half it, its breadth. Breadth. So the mercy seat was a cover for, it's the lid for the Ark of the Covenant. Now I want you to notice something. That it's made of pure gold. This, this isn't a wooden center. This is made of pure gold. Now, it's four feet by two feet. If it was an inch thick, estimates are that that lid that mercy seat, without the cherubim that are about to be placed on it, would weigh in excess of 750 pounds of pure gold. It's, it's awesome to think about the volume and what is involved here when the people of God brought these offerings and they were instructed to build these things of worship. You know, so it's not like, oh yeah, two guys grab the poles and pick up the ark here. Get the picture, okay? This is a, this is a beast to lug around and it was to be carried by the priests. Verse 18, you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the one cherub on the other end. Take note of the picture that's on the screen there of the cherubim on top of the lid. Of one piece, of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces uh, one to another, toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. So the lid was actually called the mercy seat. Uh, just for fun, not in my notes, just thinking about this as a preaching. But you remember, you recall that when some of the followers of Jesus stuck their head into the tomb looking for his body, the angels stretched out their arms, I believe, like this, and the blood was on the mercy seat, and they said, he is not here. He is risen. That's the picture. Angels like that in the tomb of Jesus, you, you should almost, like we should almost adjust our thinking into what's happening there. Verse 21, and you shall, put on the mer- you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you and commandment for the people of Israel. So this is the, the covering for the ark. These two cherubim angels fashioned, hammered out of pure gold put on the top of it and we know that once a year the high priest would enter the holy of holies and he would pour out blood on the on the mercy seat between the two cherubim on that cover on the day of atonement for the sins of the people so so that we get the picture here what's under the mercy seat the law right the tablets Um, God has placed over the law his mercy, and then blood is applied for atonement, for the forgiveness of sins. This w- and this was the place from which, where God would speak to his people. Speak with them. You know, 
Okay, toll side note, fun note, where is that thing? Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Boy, we could have fun. You should go on YouTube and just wander around. <laughs> You'd spend days on there, right? Where is the Ark of the Covenant today? Let me just throw out some fun suggestions, okay? Fun ones, just speculation for fun. Maybe it's not around at all. Uh, there are theories that it's in Ethiopia. There are theories that it's in Jordan. It might be collecting dust in the basement of the Vatican. Um, Josephus, the first century historian, claims that Jeremiah hid it in uh, caverns underneath the Temple Mount. In 1967, when uh, for a short time Israel had full control, the nation of Israel had full control of the Temple Mount, a number, a number of their rabbis went down what's called the, the rabbi uh, tunnel. It, it runs across the west side of the Temple Mount where we see the western wall. How many of you guys have been to Israel with us and gone down the, the rabbi's tunnel? Number of hands, okay? You went down the rabbi's tunnel and as you go about halfway down this tunnel that follows the full length of the wall, there is a sealed up area with concrete. That area was open in 1967 and a number of rabbis went in under that and uh, two of them claim that they saw the Ark of the Covenant under the Temple Mount. And so, you know, it's just speculation. Just having fun. It's interesting to think, right? From the ark out. Verse 23. Second item of furniture. You shall make, we're going to move quick here. You should, we're going to come back to all these things in weeks to come. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length and a cubit its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand, breadth wide, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. Uh, this is called the table of showbread, right? The bread of the presence was placed on this in, in the holy place. And we can see here again the picture of Jesus Christ. Did you see it? It's made of wood and it's overlaid with gold. The humanity and the deity of Jesus. It also says here that it had two rims around it. It had two borders that went around the top of it. And, and it's been said that there, as with this inner and outer rim, they represent the two crowns that Jesus has been given, the one he's been given and the one that he will be given. First of all, the crown of thorns that he received the day he was crucified. Acacia wood is a, it's a tree. It's like an oak, but it produces, it's a thorny wood. Also around that uh, was a, a, this rim of gold. Revelation chapter 14, 14. Jesus is going to receive crowns of gold. Verse 26. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as the holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So we see again, everything here is going to be designed to be portable, to move. The people of Israel are to follow this as a nation, this this place where they're to meet God. Of course, they're, they're going to place on this table of showbread the bread of the presence, which speaks of Jesus. He's the bread of life. Uh, 
the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. He's our provision. He's our life giver. He's our life sustainer. And the bread of the presence communicates all those things. In fact, there was 12 loaves of bread placed on this table representing the 12 tribes, the 12 disciples. It's, it's a picture of all people, that number 12. Verse 31. Next item. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out from it of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms. Boy, this is, it's detailed, eh? Good, he's got it up there. Right on. Each with a calyx and a flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. So it's, it's a one, it's a, a lampstand with one centerpiece and three branches coming up on either side from it. The lampstand, of course, is a picture of Jesus. He is the light of the world. In fact, you know, when you think about the tabernacle, it's a tent. It was a dark, a dark place. In fact, this light was the only source of light in the midst of the tabernacle, okay? There's no natural light. And it was made of pure gold, speaking solely of the divine nature of Jesus, Interesting here that where the other items had measurements applied to them, this one has no measurement. It, it's, not, it's not prescribed on what, what its height supposed to be or any of that because it's pure gold representing the deity of Jesus and you can't put a measuring stick to that. You can't measure the deity of Jesus. He's God. And so no measurements are applied to that. Verse 34, And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups, made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and their flowers. This is, essentially it's like this. When, when you see this, you know, when we've been to Israel and the Temple Institute, they, they show you all these things because this has been remade. Uh, the, the, the current one that is sitting there that we saw is made of 54 kilograms of gold, pure gold. And essentially they're, they're like little oil lamps that are set on top of the branches and so they, they break into pieces so that they can be cleaned and, and you put new wicks in and oil and all that stuff. And so as he's describing this, he's, he's talking about the pieces of the lamp that come up apart and it's described like a flower, like an almond blossom. A calyx is the bud, right? The flower is inside the calyx and it opens up. I don't know where I was. Verse 36. You guys with me? All right. The calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Seven times Moses is going to be told this. You make it as I show you on this mountain. It, essentially, like I said, he is in heaven. The Lord is showing him 
what to do. Heaven has come down to the top of the mountain and he's getting a vision for the whole structure of the universe and how God has ordained things to function. And the lampstand gave light in the holy place because it was a place of worship. Now, here's the thing. Really this, like, like we're supposed to be scratching the surface this morning. It's just like, like seriously, as you begin to study these things, it, the symbolism and the pictures of Jesus and the work of God is unbelievable. And we're talking about the first three items of furniture that go into the sanctuary. I mean, you know, we study the seven wonders of the world and this and that and all the things, you know, we look at pyramids and, and we, we're in awe of some of the great things that, that human beings have designed and built. I'm telling you, there's nothing greater than the sanctuary that Moses was given for, the pattern for on top of Mount Sinai. It, it's amazing. Not only does it speak of Jesus, but we also see the triune nature of God, the Trinity, in these three uh, articles of furniture. Of course, the mercy seat is the dwelling place of God. It's the throne of the Father. When we get to talk about the sanctuary, we will see that it's in the most holy place, right? Behind the curtain. God dwells there. The Father. Of course, the table of showbread, we see the, the bread of life that is placed on there. It's a picture, of course, of Jesus Christ in the holy place, outside the most holy place. And the lampstand is a, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. He, he gives light so that people see Jesus. He convicts the world in regards to sin, righteousness, and the judgment to, to come. Isaiah told us, I think it's in Isaiah chapter 11, that the Spirit has a sevenfold nature. There's seven lamps on the on the the candlestick there. And so, you know, the, the furniture is described before the building because I would say this. The Trinity comes first before all things. The, the nature of God and who he is and him describing and teaching the people about worship, it comes first. And if you misunderstand the Trinity, you'll misunderstand worship. And so in this early peek into the tabernacle, you know, we see that the, the only, somebody's having fun back there in the nursery. Let's strap it up here. We see that the only way to approach the mercy seat was through blood. The penalty for sin is death. The Bible tells us that life is in the blood. That's why blood was shed to make atonement for sin. Uh, life must be given in place of the sinner. And the ark with its cover, the mercy seat, that sign of God's mercy, literally teaches us that God intercepted his own judgment with the shedding of blood. He sent his son. He intercepted the judgment that was due against me and due against you for, for our sin, the penalty of death, and he sent his son Jesus. He intercepted in his mercy and Jesus gave his life on the cross. He shed his blood for our sin. He died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the picture of the mercy seat. He intercepted the judgment of God against our sin. Not only did he die, 
Not only was he buried, not only did he ra- was he raised from the dead, but the scripture tells us he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of his father and soon he will return again. He did it all. He did it all for this purpose so that God could dwell with us. So that this morning as the people of God, we could say by faith, not because we worked it, not because we earned it, not because we followed a set of laws, so that by faith we could say, we gathered two or three together and you're here in our midst and so we welcome you, Jesus, in faith. And that's the only thing that pleases God, that we would believe in the work of his son and all that he's done for us. Amen? Amen. Invite the worship team to come. And uh, we're a little tight on time, but this morning we're going to partake of communion. And uh, as these guys come and play their first song, as your heart is prepared, I just invite you to come and to the front and you can collect the communion elements. The cup, which represents the blood of Jesus that was applied on the mercy seat in heaven for us. And the bread, which represents his body that was broken uh, for us. And, uh, you know, I guess I would say this. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if Jesus isn't your personal Lord and Savior, I, I, I would just ask that you'd respectfully r- refrain from partaking. We won't look down on you. Not saying that in judgment. Just saying in respect of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Don't participate, okay? We won't point a finger at you. Um, but I want to give you this option too. And it's this. You don't know Jesus, but you say, but I want to. I want my sins forgiven. I, I, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my, I want God to dwell in me. I want to have a relationship with God. I don't want to do it on the basis of my works. I want to receive the work of the cross by faith. Then I would encourage you to do this. Get up out of your seat and partake with us this morning. Identif- be identify, identify your life with the body and blood of Jesus Christ and partake communion. Let's stand this morning and we'll, we'll sing.